I'm Joseph Dweck, and this is Humans Being. My guest this episode is Professor A.C. Grayling. Professor Grayling is Master of the New College of the Humanities and a supernumerary fellow of St. Anne's College, Oxford. He's written and edited over 30 books on philosophy. His latest book is a history of the subject, and it's the first authoritative, single-volume treatment of its kind in decades. He's written columns for several years for The Times and The Guardian, and was the chairman of the 2014 Man Booker Prize. Professor Grayling and I spoke about his early life growing up in northern Rhodesia, which is now Zambia, and the early traumas he experienced there. We discussed how philosophy came into his life early on, and why it became the focus of his career. We also spoke about the importance of meaning in one's life. We considered the role of beauty and aesthetics, and explored the roots of extremism in modern public discourse. I really valued the opportunity to connect with Professor Grayling and discuss these important issues together. Professor Grayling, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've been reading a great deal recently, um, uh, your writings and about you. And I always, whenever we have a guest on the podcast, I always think that it's important to have a bit of background and a sense of their story and how it is that they've come to where they are and what it is they're doing. And I know that you have a, a very interesting early life. You were born in northern Rhodesia. You uh, attended boarding school with uh, what seems like a less than pleasant experience. Your, your older sister, Jennifer, was murdered and your mother died soon after that, all before your 20th birthday. I, I wonder, Professor, if you could, ha- you could share with us how those early experiences essentially traumas, um, formed your uh, life experience? And how has philosophy come into your life uh, in connection with that? Uh, Philosophy came in rather early, actually. When I was uh, about 12, my mother managed to arrange for me to have a a grown-up person's library ticket for the little local library where we lived in a place called Ndola, Uh, in northern Rhodesia, which is now Zambia. And this is a little town right on the Congo border. So we were very close at that time to the Katangese War, which was uh, also a rather enlivening experience. This little library was uh, very eccentric in its collection because, you know, people had had gone out from from home, from the UK, to to run the empire, I suppose, and had promptly died of tropical diseases, leaving their books of this little library, which contained, therefore, the complete works of Plato in the translation by Benjamin Jowett. And uh, I'd, as a smaller boy, been paging through the pages of the set of encyclopedia we had at home, looking at pictures of Plato and Aristotle with their magnificent beards and Socrates with his snub nose, fascinated by all that, and trying to make sense of, of um, the articles uh, in the encyclopedia. And thinking to myself, well, I'd, I'd really like to you know, read what they had to say. So when I got this this uh, ticket and saw this collected works of Plato, um, with delight I pulled down the first volume and opened it the first page. And by sheer good luck, it happened to be the first page of the Carmides, which is a very early and a very accessible dialogue by Plato, um, perfectly intelligible to a to, to to a boy. And I read it and bowled over by it. I, I thought to myself, if these great iconic figures of our civilization can dedicate their lives to thinking about these sorts of things, then I'm going to do likewise. 
couple of years later uh, for the princely sum of sixpence in, in real money of, of the old days, uh, I bought myself a copy of G.H. Lewis's Biographical History of Philosophy, which was written in the middle of the 19th century, and a very good book for its time, a very accurate one. And I must have read it, I suppose, cover to cover, you know, a dozen times at least. So fascinating did I find it. And it settled my vocation, really. I thought, that's it, I'm, I'm going to do philosophy. And then I, I, I discovered, to my even greater delight, that if you're interested in philosophy, that means that you must be interested in everything. Indeed, being a philosopher means that you have a license to stick your nose into just about everything, history, science, politics, society. Uh, and uh, life uh, from that point of view has been a delight because I've been able to do that and um, spend a whole lifetime learning. It sounds like, well, we certainly do not want you to stop. <laughs> We're very, very grateful that you're sharing with us. And, you know, I'm listening to that. It sounds like love at first sight, Professor. Yes, it, it was. It was. And also it was something of a salvation too, because as you point out, the um, circumstances weren't uh, particularly easy. Um, you know, we moved around in Africa a bit in different parts of Zambia and then in Nyasaland, Malawi. I went to a lot of different schools, the boarding schools. My parents um, used to go to the UK and travel a lot fairly frequently. And indeed, uh, although uh, they, they were, well, my father especially, were a kindly sort of man. I had very little to do with them, being brought up mainly by uh, servants or, or schools. And when they sent me to my prep school when I was eight, they didn't say that they were coming to fetch me back again at any point. They just said, we're, we're off to um, England. Uh, and uh, they were due back in about six or seven months, but I didn't... Uh, know that i just thought that that, that was it you know, oh a new a new chapter of life had opened but it didn't particularly worry me about them it did worry me however about the, those of our servants with whom i was very close because uh, i've been looked after and brought up by them and i miss them uh, tremendously i think but after the tragedies that happened in our family my, my sister had a very difficult life actually she uh, you know so it was a complicated story um, about her but uh, after the deaths of my mother and sister, I thought that the right thing to try to do, at any rate, since the universe had taken away uh, so much, was to try to see if one could put a little bit back in again. So I became a bit of a workaholic as a result anyway and, and sort of got stuck in and uh, tried to find out as much as possible and to be a participant in the in the great conversation. I'm listening to this, and um, just the thought of of a young boy at eight years old being left uh, at school, boarding school, not knowing that he might ever see his parents again, and as you say, more importantly, you know, essentially your primary caretakers were the the people in the in the house that in the in your parents' employ that were taking care of you. I mean, I must say, it, the thought of the trauma of that is staggering. And, you know, I hear you say that the, you know, kind of immersing yourself into your work. Um, was philosophy a sucker for you? Was it more than a distraction from the, from the experience of that? Well, then and ever since, uh, the immersion in, um, in study, in reading, in writing, in teaching, in finding out about things, in being very curious about this uh, very extraordinary world that we occupy, has always been 
not just a, a pleasure and not just a salvation, but a, a something that has provided a, a lot of rather deep meaning. I mean, the, the sense that uh, uh, insight or understanding, being able to add a little bit to, to one's comprehension of things and to reflect on them, think about them and, and tease out the implications of them. That That is so exhilarating a process, so absorbing, that one can, you know, really forget about oneself and one's problems and troubles and just be out there in, to, in this great adventure, which is the adventure of ideas and, and knowledge. There is a, a, a sort of exhilaration in ideas. I mean, I, I, I'm i sitting almost on the other side. Um, I don't know if we would call it a spectrum, you know, speaking to you, but this sense of, you know, you mentioning philosophy as being this uh, lens with which you can explore almost anything in life and uh, the exhilaration of ideas. You know, uh, you're a philosopher, I'm a rabbi. I've immersed myself into the study of the Torah, which is, you know, the Jewish, you know, sor- you know source of, you know, kind of philosophy, wisdom, uh, outlook on the world that has essentially been a, a dialogue that's been ongoing for uh, close to 3,000 years. So I... I um, I sense and understand this, you know, this exhilaration of ideas that is tremendously uplifting. But another thing that I I know about you um, from reading about you is that it's not enough. There is a strong sense in your writings that you believe that philosophy should not just be ideas. That is that accurate? Very much so. And in fact, uh, it, this point has been you know made by a number of people, including um, Karl Marx, who said. It's not good enough just to understand the world, but you've got to try and change it also. That mm. is, that is better put in a way by talking about not merely being a spectator, but being a participant. Not merely trying to make sense of things, but trying to put to work the sense that you can make of things. And that's important too, because one major dimension of all this activity is the effort to try to answer the question that Socrates put. Socrates' question was, what sort of people should we be? How should we live? What values should should shape our our lives and and direct them? And coming to an answer to that question is vitally important for each individual in every generation. Why is it vital? Because uh, if you don't don't think uh, and um, choose, if you don't live the considered and chosen life, then you're just living on autopilot according to what other people think is the right way to live. And, and what's wrong with that, Professor? What's wrong with for a person saying, you know something, I'm going to get up, go to work, come home, provide for my family, uh, you know, follow essentially the basic desires that I have and, and, and carry on with my life. Why, why is that problematic? If, if it were done um, without it being chosen, I can imagine there are people who say, I'm perfectly happy with a conventional life and uh, uh, the conventional aims that people set themselves, and I'm going to live accordingly. Then that too is a choice, of course. And a lot of people do make that choice consciously. But then I suspect even more people don't know that they're making a choice or are, are just going with the stream. And therefore, and this is the problem, therefore not living quite as they might live to the full, if they were to reflect a little bit on their lives. So it sounds like, you know, on the one hand, the question of Socrates, of what kind of people should we be, what kind of life should we live, it sounds like as though you are saying it's synonymous with a 
freely chosen life. In other words, it sounds like free choice of life is is paramount. Would you say that's accurate? Because that's how I, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, if you understand the qualification there, which is that uh, we are all of us caught in the in the webs of time and history and society, we have obligations on us. There are laws that have to be obeyed, and there's rent that has to be paid. So there are many constraints and restrictions. But within that, the the sense of uh, who one is and um, what kinds of things one values and and pursues, what talents one has, what desires one would like to fulfill, which, for which you can make a, a, a reasonable case that other people would recognize. And most important of all, because we are social beings, we're social animals, and we need relationships with others, and to have good relationships. You know, this business about choice is important in the question of relationship as well, because some of our very best relationships are our chosen ones, the people we choose to be friends with. Or to you mean that. as opposed to family? Yes. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, families can be very toxic environments, not always. Uh, very often also they can be tremendously supportive ones. But that may be, you know, because um, we, we come, even though we've been obliged to, to be in that family with those people, we can sometimes choose where a choice has already been made. Eric Fromm made the point, I think, in his book, um, fear of freedom, I think it might be published under a different title in the United States, that um, that everyone should or ultimately needs to leave their context of origin, their family, and to be able to find one's own self, even amidst the anxiety and you know fear that, that comes with kind of pulling away from that. And that it's only in the discovery of spontaneous love and creative work that a person finds some level of redemption into, into the world. Yeah, that's a familiar, um, a familiar view, and in its way, with one very important qualification, in its way, it's a rather noble one. It's a familiar trope from the existentialist tradition in philosophy that um, being creative and, and seeking good relationships, seeking love, and, and taking responsibility for one's freedom, the fact that ultimately if one's, one is responsible for choices and, and how one acts, that those things, uh, if faced and if if grasped with courage and determination can be what Im- imports uh, meaning into life you know the question you, you mentioned a few times is this point of meaning is that what it is that philosophy brings to us in our lives is it what we should strive for in the study of it yes it, it's uh, first it's a demand to to live a meaningful life and not just a uh, drift along on, on the tide of, of, of existence, come into it and go out again, use up some oxygen on the planet. I'm going to press you, Professor. Why is that a problem? I mean, I agree with you wholeheartedly, but I, I am curious, why is, that a, why is that an issue that, and I know that you feel strongly about, you know, advocating that there should be purpose to people's lives. They should be living with meaning. They shouldn't just be going with the tides and taking up oxygen. Why is that imperative? Because it's such a waste. I mean, if, if uh, you know, all the potential for human creativity and affection and friendship um, were just uh, allowed to drift without an aim, uh, without producing anything ever, um, without involving the agent himself or herself in doing something which adds uh, a, little, a little value to the world. Think of it this way. That, that this, is a, this is one way of, of dramatizing it. 
Supposing it to be the case that the universe comes into existence in a Big Bang or whatever, uh, and uh, it unfolds over eons, uh, and after you know some, I don't know, twelve billion years or something on one little planet in one ordinary galaxy, uh, intelligent life, self-aware, conscious existence flickers into being, and then after a, a few thousand years or a few tens of thousands of years, flickers out again. Mm-hmm. So that the entire history of the universe is, as it were, neutral. It's just there. There's no yeah. question of it being right, wrong, good or bad. But then this little bit of intelligence happens. Now, if there's some total of negativity, of waste, of cruelty, of unkindness, of hatred, of uh, disagreement and conflict, outweighed all the love and the creativity and the positivity, then the entire history of the universe is stained by that fact. And it's a bad thing that the universe... But stained for who, Professor? I mean, as you describe it, which, which uh, you know, does basically point out to all of us that, you know, the universe is headed towards entropy, that, uh, you know, ultimately it's going to end as it began. Um, a stain where? To whom? Why is that important? Us, we, we who, are, who are contemplating this. So I ask myself the question, w- would it matter if the quantum of evil outweighed the quantum of good in the brief history of intelligence as a tiny little flash in the universe's history? Would that matter? Then from my perspective, and, and it should be from yours also, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. This, this, in fact, is an in, you know, indication of the way in which human consciousness, human intelligence, self-awareness and thought uh, are themselves, we now, as we think about and discuss these things, we now constitute the measure. This is Protagoras, you know, in, in the, the sense that he is right in which man is the measure. It's this idea that we can contemplate whether or not uh, there can be a, a, an excess of good over evil or evil over good in the entire history of the universe and make a judgment about what that would say about the universe itself. Mm-hmm. It seems that, uh, and if, I, if, I'm, if I'm hearing you, that you're saying essentially as long as there are uh, conscious beings on this arbitrary planet, you know, revolving around this, this random star, uh, able to be aware of themselves and of the universe in which they inhabit to whatever degree, it is during that period of consciousness um, a pr- imperative that they hold that consciousness, uh, for lack of a better term, sacred, that they hold it valuable and that the consciousness itself matters and therefore things should matter in terms of that consciousness and that awareness. Beautifully put. It's a heavy responsibility on us uh, that the whole history of the universe depends upon how we choose and behave. Mm. So that that brings me to something that I, I, I look forward to hearing your your comments on, because I'm a reader of, of existentialist philosophy. I'm, I'm pr- probably a bit partial to it. And, you know, I, uh, wanna, I'm, I'm a big fan of Viktor Frankl. And, you know, he's famous for, in his Man's Search for Meaning, saying that, you know, essentially, as long as we find meaning, um, and he bases that on Nietzsche, you know, but as, as, lo- as long as we find meaning, life is, is justified or essentially vindicated. I'm paraphrasing. But I always wonder, and I don't say this only as a rabbi. I mean, obviously, as a rabbi, I do believe in God. And, you know, I live my life kind of recognizing that there is, you know, a greater consciousness. But that's not, you know, that's, that's something that I bracket in this. I'm, I'm questioning in general, in terms of the human condition. At the end of the day, 
our sense of meaning, our assertion and even definition of meaning is self-contained. We are pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And I can't help but you know, have this gnawing reminder that we are, we are floating over an abyss of meaninglessness. How do you address that? How do you deal with that? I find if, I'm, if I am only me and my own consciousness and the collective consciousness of, consciousness of my species in this universe, we still are teetering on this abyss of absolute meaninglessness. Um, and I wonder, as you mentioned before, you know, if, you, if a person does not live a moral life and bring philosophy into their life, that it's a waste. But it's all a waste. Yeah, I, how do how do we deal with the pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps by you know imposing our own meaning, perhaps almost in a in an egocentric way? If 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 you you, you know what I mean by that, I do. Firstly, let me say that the observation that there is no antecedent meaning, there's no purpose, there's no goal or design. Uh, in, so we come to consciousness, we wake up when we're 7 or 10 or 12 or 15 or whenever, and we begin to reflect a little bit on the world and to ask ourselves the question, why am I here? Why is anything here? Why does anything exist at all? Uh, and then a, a certain um, mindset might say, well, in itself, uh, the universe a realm of, of natural physical law uh, that doesn't have a purpose or, or des- a design, and therefore um, it, it doesn't have a meaning in that sense. Now you can you can dramatize that. You, you can be horrified by the uh, the fact that the universe is a neutral place, brother. As you've just done by saying the abyss of meaninglessness is the horror <laughs> of the fact that no, no purpose and quite design. dramatic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> or, or or you can just say, okay, so. The universe is, is neutral, but here uh, are we. We, we are sentient uh, beings, um, and conscious beings, and we can suffer and we can enjoy. So there can be pain, there can be pleasure, there can be affection, there can be conflict. Uh, and we, we just know something from, from the way uh, we ourselves feel, how we react to others, what we see uh, of, about others, and what we learn about the human story. We begin to see, we begin to understand something about the nature of the good and what militates against the good. Let me give you an example. In the years immediately after the Second World War, after the frightful atrocities that were committed in the 1930s and the 1940s. The Holocaust. In the Holocaust. Yeah, I mean the Holocaust mainly. And uh, you know, others, I mean, think about the, the mm-hmm. Japanese, for example, in East Asia. Yes. And so on. In the, in the immediate sequel of all that, the nations of the earth got together, United Nations, they declared what human rights should be. I, I like to put the point by saying out of the experience of wrongs comes our identification of rights, of what we want people to have and be able to do, to have a space around themselves, of freedom, of privacy, of choice, so that they can be self-creating. Because by being self-creating, they can, they can make the good. They can make something which is worthwhile, which brings them satisfaction, and most of those satisfactions are going to come through their relationships. Now, we understand these things. Our, our experience teaches us something about the possibility of good, um, and it also teaches us a great deal about the possibility of its opposite. So when we talk about creating meaning, about imputing, infusing meaning into what is otherwise a neutral universe, this meaning comes through our capacities to feel, to respond, to make choices, uh, and to be creative. 
And this takes us all the way back to Socrates. You know, when Socrates said, what sort of people should we be, meaning how should we live, what should the character of our life be? You may remember that the etymology of the word ethics is uh, the ancient Greek word ethos, meaning character. So what should my character be and what should the character and content of my, of my life be? That question becomes a, a really significant question because it's the question about what makes my life, what makes life in general worthwhile, worth living. But would you say worth living, meaningful, these terms that we are, you know, we're using almost cavalierly, you know, we, we're throwing these in because we kind of have a sense of what it is that they mean. But essentially, are you saying that it's it's the nature of the human condition that requires meaning and what, what's worthwhile? Yes, I, I am saying that. But um, uh, so, so I'm saying that uh, conscious, creative, uh, feeling individuals can feel their lives to be worthwhile and flourishing, or they can feel them to be negative and, and uh, dispiriting and, and painful, unhappy. Uh, and that whatever it takes to make it the former rather than the latter is what makes a life worthwhile or meaningful for that individual. Here's an important point, though. Um, so somebody who, um, well, perhaps somebody who's more towards your end of the spectrum might think yeah. that, that, that there is an endowment of purpose or, or meaning or an endowment of the possibility of meaning in, in life, which comes from an external source, perhaps a transcendent source in some way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the implications of, of Socrates' uh, challenge to his fellow Athenians when he said, what do you think a good life should be like? How should we live? There was a very, very simple, but at the same time very deep and also very subversive implication of what he said. Because uh, in, in saying, as he did, that the unconsidered life, the life not thought about and, and not chosen, he said, Socrates said, is not worth living because it's, you're just a football in somebody else's game. You get kicked in the direction that they kick you in and so on. Uh, when he said that, the implication of it was that each one of us individually has to think and choose and be the creator of the meaning in our lives. In other words, that there is not a one-size-fits-all model answer to what is the meaningful and good life. But there are as many such answers as there are individuals to find them. Now, here comes the important constraint. Somebody might uh, hear this challenge from Socrates and say, oh, okay, I have to think. I've got to understand myself. Know thyself, it says over the entrance to Delphi, okay? So I've got to know myself. I've got to think about the things that I'm apt for, have talents, capacities, interests in. And I've got to think about what, what life would be like um, you know, what, what relationships I would like to have, uh, what I would like to do. And that makes my life a meaningful thing to me because it's going to be my individual meaning and the meaning of people I'm close to. So what could that be? Now let us imagine this person says, well, I think I'd be a jolly good murderer. <laughs> now, the, the, the point about that constraint on that is that you have to be able to make a case to the best judging, most sober-minded, most uh, critically scrupulous um, person uh, you can, and that should be, by, your, by the way, yourself when you're in your best moments, you know, the kind of person you are when you really try to help a friend about whom you care a great deal and they're in trouble and you want to give them some advice, you know, be that person to yourself or have a notional such person. Could you make a case uh, about being a, a murderer and living a good life? And the person would immediately respond, if you murder somebody, you don't just end that person's life and all that person's potentials, 
But you hurt so many other people. You condemn so many other people to a life sentence of grief and horror at, at somebody, at what happened to somebody they, they cared about. That that is such a terrible thing to do, to destroy a world in a person and to stain and, and, and harm the worlds of, of so many others. You cannot make a case that would justify that. Mm. Somebody who chose to be a doctor or a teacher or, or, or a nurse or a fireman or a, uh, a rabbi, you know, mm-hmm. those, those are choices which have the potential to be life-enhancing. Potential? Yeah, it has the potential to be life-enhancing, yeah. It can go south. <laughs> it can, of course, but then, you know, it's not the arrival, it's the journey, isn't it? Yes, it is, indeed. You know, I hear so much, uh, you know, of, of, of what you're saying, Professor, uh, echoing or being echoed in my mind from, you know, Jewish teaching and uh, especially the Talmud, which essentially is this, you know, broad exposition um, on the Bible and its commandments. But, you know, the Jewish perspective is, that yes, we certainly see um, you know God bringing into the world, or at least you know communicating in whatever fashion to the world uh, principles by which people should live. But one major component of Judaism is the idea of covenant, and so you know no matter what the principle is, it requires a great deal of uh, definition, application, innovation uh, from the human beings with whom. Uh, who are engaged with it. So even, you know, honor your father and mother. Well, whose father and whose mother? And uh, what if one is adopted? And what if, you know, one had other carers? And uh, and what is honor? Is it the, the, the person who's who's the object of the honor, the one who's doing the honoring? These are these are essentially broad questions that, that open up a great deal of definition, involvement, and thought, which essentially has been the, the subject of, you know, Jewish thought for for millennia, actually. I have a question for you in, in that connection, because uh, I, I agree with you that there's a, an enormous amount of, of wisdom, of insight, of guidance uh, in, the, in the Jewish tradition. And um, I've often wondered to myself, given how much parallel there is in a way between the kind of thinking that I've just been described, which is fundamentally a kind of secular humanist uh, view uh, of things, um, I speak as a, as, as a humanist myself. I distinguish, uh, as you may have seen if you've been crawling about a little bit, between <laughs> an, an atheist uh, perspective, which is about metaphysics, really, about what does or doesn't exist in the universe, yeah. and secularism, which is really about public policy matters and how loud a voice any sectional interest in society should have. Uh, but um, the, the ethical aspect of all this is, is humanism, which I characterize as our attempt to uh, take responsibility for ourselves, but also to treat others with the greatest degree of generosity and sympathy for all the failings of human nature and the human condition that we understand. Not, not so um, concessive, not so generous that we let you know, anything go, um, but because uh, there are lines that cannot be crossed. But, but nevertheless, to recognize the great diversity there is in, in human interest and need uh, and to be respectful of it. So that's the humanistic conception. And I find a great deal in Jewish thought very, very similar to that. So here's my question. What does it add to, to say that there is a, a deity in the universe? Ah, that's a good question. I will respond first by saying that, um, yes, there's no question that in Jewish tradition, law, thought, 
the human being, uh, you, you actually paraphrase it, that the human being is a world and an entire universe, actually, each and every single one. And a human life, no matter what it, no matter which life it is, essentially is sacred. But that's essentially what, you know, a deity brings. It's interesting because, you know, the, the discussion of God, I've heard so many debates. I've even, I think that, you know, you had debated someone, um, a colleague of mine, Rabbi Daniel Rowe, I don't know, some months ago. Um, and it's interesting because I, I read these debates and I, and I listen to these debates and I'm not sure the, the value of the debates personally, because I don't know that uh, anyone is going to convince one uh, one way or another, or whether the proofs uh, for or against are that substantial if we're talking about an entity that is beyond our universe, um, and therefore not necessarily uh, based on our on our logic. Yeah, I mean, we definitely have rabbinic tradition that attempts to prove God's existence, and I think that the only reason for that is in order to be able to open a person's affinity to experience rather than kind of basing their entire knowledge and, and uh, connection or belief in God based on proofs. The value, in answer directly to your question, although it is only in, 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 in direct answer to your question with regards to the human being, the value of deity is that there is definitely a sense in Jewish thought, a strong belief and principle in Jewish thought, that the human being is sacred because um, the life that is in human being and all living things, but certainly, you know, there is greater level to the conscious um, self-aware being, um, that that comes from a source of, of whatever it is that we could call it. The truth of the matter is we can't call it life and we can't call it being. We borrow these terms whenever it is that we talk of such an entity, but that the that that essentially is the is an ultimate ultimately meaningful ultimately powering all things it is the source of all things so i i you know i hear the the debates back and forth and i never hear anyone really define what they mean when they say god and it could very well be that two people are talking about completely different things when they say it but for ultimately jewish thought we're essentially talking about you know primal existence similar to you know the primal mover or, you know, the first cause, but not exactly, and more of, you know, a soul, so to speak, of the universe. And the reason that that is valuable is because it, we are not then uh, hovering over a, a meaningless abyss, that meaning is imposed from the outside. And that, that perhaps more importantly, and this is something actually that I'd like to hear your perspective on, there's always, it would seem to me, that there is always a an egocentric risk of of providing one's own meaning, of relying on one's own perspective, of of essentially relying on oneself to answer Socrates' question. Um, because what happens, it seems to me that it would be an occupational hazard of of thinking that way. That we do believe ultimately that we, if there isn't an external you know, source of things. We end up becoming the focal point and the source. And we end up um, being the all that is. And that puts the human being from a Jewish perspective or from, from a, a, you know, a, a perspective that is rooted in Jewish thought, it puts the human being at a place that he neither can handle nor necessarily deserves. Um, 
And I wonder about that because I wonder about your thoughts in terms of the the egocentric nature of of seeing one's own provision of meaning and that be enough, um, even if it's in the aggregate, right? Even if it's in the collective humanity that's doing it, is that a problem? And how? And if it is a problem, how does one address that problem from an atheistic or agnostic perspective? Uh, you you make me smile, you know, because I'm thinking to myself that uh, if we were just to rerun what you've just said very eloquently there about why you feel that the invocation of a deity um, plays some kind of useful role in this thinking, that if you were to rerun that but re- replace it with talking about paying your taxes, <laughs> you know, that, that you you know why should why should you be completely responsible for paying your taxes? Why can't somebody come and help you pay them? Or, or you know why isn't it a bit egocentric to think that you are totally responsible for etc. 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 No, I hear that, but there is there is a notion that you know I I am not going to do my own plumbing, right? <laughs> and and I yeah. certainly am going to go to an accountant when I have to pay my taxes because otherwise I, I guarantee you that I Joe Dweck will muck it up. Yeah, there are limits to what it is that I can do on my own by myself, Um, even in terms of the definition and and leading of my own my own life, I would think. Yeah, but the tendency of of that way of thinking is fully realized, in fact, in the in the two young religions of our world, Christianity and Islam, in both of which the idea of taking responsibility of standing on your own feet, so to speak, of, of having to make the fundamental choices that determine what you are and how you live. In Christianity, this is regarded as a terrible sin to do it, the sin of pride, thinking right. you don't. So Judaism you don't doesn't necessarily it. think that. I don't no, I think that there's a delineation, yeah. Yeah, that's quite right. And then in the case of Islam, well, the very word Islam means submission or surrender. Yeah. So yeah. you know and in fact in Christianity there's the prayer which says, not my will be done, but thy will be done. So this handing over of of the self of responsibility of being ultimately the locus where choice and experience and responsibility right. lie that is the thing that, that a humanist like myself would say to try to dodge that is yeah. is the mistake uh, and to accept it uh, is to live with as the stokes used to say is to live with you know the, the nobility which is available to to a human life if those choices are made yeah, I understand that. And I, you know, I wonder whether the other extreme of saying that it should only be me um, is, is, is ultimately the best, the best tack. Um, but I don't say that as an, I, I wonder, you know, and I would say that essentially Judaism um, would probably be somewhere in, in the middle saying, um, you know, I am not the only one and not necessarily the center of the, of the universe. However, I am extremely important and empowered and 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 engaged and expected to be quite engaged, you know, in terms of responsibility, recognizing what it is that I must respond to, what it is that's required of me in this world. And uh, and it would be sinful to shirk that and to kind of say, well, I throw that up. But, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, on, on, in another component, um, if we can move to it, reason is the jet fuel it is the, the 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 essential mechanism of philosophy would that be accurate to say yes it is it is the instrument of, of philosophy but yeah. i should immediately qualify that though because Please. there is a 
there is a direction in which the conversation could now go that, okay. that would uh, you know no, would be, you know the problem with the enlightenment is uh, overemphasis on on rationality and leaving out the rich emotional mm. side of our lives which matters mm. uh, mostly to us and indeed i would say and I, and I often do if i'm permitted the use of the word spiritual in a non transcendent a non-ghostly non-religious sense but to talk about the complex of our feelings and attitudes and responses then i would say that 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 the spiritual aspect of our lives the way that we feel about others and the way we thrill to the beauty and things in nature and in music and the rest of it is perhaps the most important thing about us so this for, for somebody for whom reason is uh, the guide and the instrument it is not not by any stretch of the imagination, all that there is. One wouldn't want to end up in some sort of desiccated, cold position of thinking that everything must be a, a rational calculation. Like Mr. Spock in Star Trek. Although, of course, yeah. we all know about Mr. Spock in, in Star Trek. Two things. Firstly, as Antonio Damasio quite rightly said about him, that if he had no emotions, he would be a very bad reasoner. And secondly, <laughs> we do know that he had emotions. I suspect he was a bit in love with Captain Kirk. But at any rate, the, the, uh, the, the really important thing is the education of the emotions. That is, the, the government that reason can sometimes apply uh, to, to our emotions in order that we don't just yield to aggression or greed or selfishness or, uh, you know, um, prejudice, but where, where we can foster those of our emotions that work to the good and that we can try and achieve some kind of self-government over those that are less positive. I appreciate you pointing that out, Professor. And I know, I mean, from from what I've what I've read, and I look so forward to reading more of your work. And and there is a great deal of it. Thank you. Please keep it coming. I know that you are not a reductionist. You know, as you say, you know what what you are terming the spiritual aspects, perhaps you know the emergent aspects of the complexities of our of our human experiences. Um, you say are the most important. Are you concerned? in the world of reason that reductionism happens and and do you do anything to safeguard or to kind of promote against that do you believe it, it needs to be uh, well the, the answer is, is uh, well a great philosophical answer coming up y yes and no uh, in the following let's sense, go for but, it <laughs> <laughs> why should in, we stop now <laughs> In the, in the sense that there, there is a, an application of the reductionist method, which which really does leave out a great deal that's important. You know how they say you can encapsulate reductionism by by describing the pearl as nothing but the disease of the oyster, and this, of course, is to is to you know miss out so much. But on, on the other hand, it's it's a powerful tool. I mean, for example, to understand let us say, the psychological properties like intention, desire, memory, capacity to learn, see, hear. Um, we, we try to understand them in terms of uh, structures in the brain, um, networks of, of uh, neurons, for example. So th this looks like a, this is indeed a, a reductionist enterprise where you're trying to get from psychological concepts to neurological ones. Doing so is immensely powerful because it can direct one's attention, for example, to how to deal with certain kinds of psychological deficits or locate the source of brain disease, Alzheimer's, and so forth. So there is a use to it, providing it's not exclusive, but providing, in other words, that one you know, understands its role, its use, and the limits of its use, and that one also understands that uh, things have properties which their parts don't have. 
So, for example, uh, a single uh, motor vehicle tyre or steering wheel or exhaust pipe can't be driven from here to Oxford. But when you put all the bits together in the right kind of way, uh, you get a you get a motor vehicle, and then that has the property of being able to be driven to Oxford. And so, so you have to be very careful about what you've left behind when you perform reductive enterprises, while at the same time seeing that reduction can be informative about some things. So there is the, there are these emergent properties that you know we should not disregard simply because they are. Uh, you know, that the whole is more than the sum of its parts and that one could essentially look at the parts uh, as parts. And as you say, an important tool for particular purposes, but not necessarily for things to be left there. Um, that our appreciation, even our, our, our enthralled response to beauty, to, to art, to, you know, these, the, the aesthetics, these things, how important do you feel those, those elements are to life? Oh, I think they're, they're central. They're crucial. Why are they crucial? What do they do for us? Yeah. Well, 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 what they do for us is rather what water does to your potted plants. You know, if your potted plants had no water, if, if nothing ever fed or nourished them or, or, or uh, refreshed them, um, they would die. Uh, and I think human beings die in the absence of, of beauty and, and friendship. Um, human beings no, die in the absence of beauty and friendship? Internally, not, not physically necessarily. Think of it this way. Supposing every single day you did exactly the same thing at exactly the same time, at the same serial, read the same words on the same page at the same time, and so on. Then your whole life would have been uh, consumed in living a single day. So without, without inputs, without stimulations, without challenges, without hearing uh, new tunes, without without uh, seeing new things, with, without revisiting things that in the past gave you that that input of of, uh, of refreshment, like seeing the same play again or, or listening to your favourite concerti uh, on the um, on the CD. Without those things, you would be, as it were, not watering the the, the plant of your of your inner self. Mm. So in using spirit in the way that you've used it, in the way that you've defined it, that it, it, is, it is essential to the health of the world and to the, the peace, essentially, of the world, that we are spiritually nourished. Yes. I, you know, I know that you've, you've launched a, a new university, the, the new college of, of the humanities, and you are essentially, as a philosopher, a career academic. Um, there's been a lot of talk recently about how thought is um, allowed to flourish in universities. I um, I know that you, you know you you cherish the the opportunities and the the endeavors of free thought of being given the the opportunities to not only explore philosophy but but to explore how it is that we might apply the great ideas to our lives. Is, is university still the place, or was it ever, the place for that to occur? And if not, what might be happening? It's an interesting question, that, uh, because, of course, a university is a um, place where that ought to be able to happen. Mm. It's the kind of place that ought to foster that. We have to remember that universities... Um, constantly evolving institutions and in the last uh, 
century or century and a half or so, they've changed yet again um, because uh, look at the universities in, in this country. Most of the scientific research that was done was uh, um, promoted through the world societies, World Geological Society, World Zoological Society. You know, when Darwin came back from his voyage uh, on the Beagle, he didn't go to Cambridge, his alma mater, to uh, give a talk about his discoveries. He went to um, the Royal uh, Geological Society, I mm. think it was, and made the announcement there. And why was that? Why was that? Because uh, scientific research uh, was not something that was done in the universities. The universities were mainly dedicated to the study of the humanities, of the classics, to some extent um, mathematics as well, but then mathematics isn't art. And it wasn't really until the 19th century, or in the case of Germany in the 18th century, that other faculties began to be combined. Go back to medieval times, you see that a university was a place to train um, theologians and civil servants and lawyers. Uh, and uh, it was uh, um, an institution which thought that a philosophy, which then and until very recently meant general inquiry, was the kind of foundation on which these superior uh, studies could be based. But the joining of, of the um, natural sciences and then the development of the social sciences along with the humanities and universities to make a, 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 g a genuinely universal institution, the aim was that you would get a kind of cross-fertilization of ideas, of understanding. Mm -hmm. People would talk to one another, learn from, from one another. In practice, of course, that hasn't happened. What a wonderful idea that is. I mean, it still sounds oh, yeah. so enthralling. <laughs> yeah, that might it is. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. is. Not least because, um, you know, all, all the, all the, uh, the silos. Now, we'll have a look at the sciences, and the sciences are not interested in, in labels, they're interested in results. So this is why you get biochemistry and neurobiology, and mm. you know you get all these interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary pursuits. Mm. And this is because the sciences find that um, they can make very good use of what their neighbours are doing in a, in a nearby science. Uh, and and as a result, we see huge amount of progress. By the way, it's a it's a very interesting fact about the immensely rapid development of scientific understanding, especially in physics, both in, in um, the physics of the small and the physics of the universe itself over the last hundred years or so, that uh, the, this massive expansion of knowledge turns out to apply to only 5% of the universe. And then what we've <laughs> discovered is that we know far less than, than we think we know about the universe, which is a great paradox of knowledge, very exciting. It means yes. there's so much more work to be done. But I'm afraid, you know, the, th the thing that exercised me, I have to say, I'm going to be very frank about this. One reason why I founded my college, having taught both in Oxford and at London University for many, many years, uh, that we were, we were catching the imaginations of too few of, of our students. Too many students were going through a study of the humanities and more or less forgetting or having very rudimentary or fragmentary memory of what it was that they read and discussed while they were students. They remembered the parties and the times they got particularly drunk and the mistakes <laughs> they made of an amorous nature and so on. Which is valuable in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, yeah. that's, uh, you know, partying and, and making mistakes yeah. in love are a very important part of the university experience. I don't want to downplay that at all. But it should also be the case that one should be really struck by some ideas, by some mm. insights, that, that one should feel that one was really moved and moved on, enriched, enlarged by, by some of what, what one had come across. I'd like to give the following examples. I imagine perhaps some of your listeners might have heard this and you may very well know this. 
But I, I often say to my, my first-year students, I say to them, what would you say if I asked you what proportion of fresh water consumed in the United Kingdom is imported? And, of course, they all immediately begin to think of boxes of Evian water and, and so on. Uh, what one student rather imaginatively said, 100%, because it comes in the form of rain in the clouds. <laughs> but but that, that wasn't the right answer either. And uh, so they all, you know, make sort of 5% or 12% or, or something. And the answer is 70%. 70% of the fresh water consumed in the UK is imported in the form of fresh fruit and vegetables grown in countries where they have a water shortage. Hmm. Now, th- just, just that one fact uh, about water, water consumption, and what form it comes in and wh- where it's grown ought to be so surprising, so jolting, that it should make a difference to how we look at the world and at ourselves. That's just one very, very simple example of how every single day students in the lecture hall, in the tutorial, in the seminar should be being, you know, sort of made to sit up and think, gosh, wow, you know, that's, that's pretty, that's amazing. I want to think about that one. And um, Do I agree with that? I don't feel that I do, but why not? And what is it that I'm bringing to this that makes me react as I do to it? That should be happening all the time. This should be absolutely exhilarating. And do you feel that that's not happening? Well, look, you know, the, the, the facts are out there. You know, stop almost any graduate uh, and say to them, what do you think of your university experience? Mm-hmm. It seems from the outside that, you know, students at university, uh, certainly in the Western world, but it seems pretty much across wherever there are universities, that they become quite uh, vocal and, and, uh, and active in many of the major issues um, that are that are affecting humanity, I wonder, you know, what it is that you see might be missing in that. Is there is there a strong infusion of politics at the universities? Is it in some way encumbering or eclipsing the academic endeavors, the elements of thought? Look, it's a, it's a mixed picture. Well, one thing to notice is that uh, student political activism comes and goes in waves. So there, there are certain points or periods where you get tremendous outbursts of student activism. The late 1960s would, would be one example. Uh, we've seen it to some extent now um, as a result of the uh, Black Lives Matter campaign and the killing of George Floyd. There's been outbursts of outrage about that yeah. uh, and, and activism based on that. So from time to time, you, you see upsurges of acti- activism and other times you're surprised and dismayed by how quiescent they seem. Then uh, cutting across that, of course, is the whole PC um, thing, which yeah. uh, has made no platforming and uh, censorship and free speech uh, um, debates uh, on campus, especially in the United States of America and to a lesser extent here, uh, mm-hmm. an issue. An issue how? Well, in, in the sense that uh, controversies blow up about who's going to be allowed to come and speak. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I mean, you, you may very well be familiar yourself that uh, if uh, somebody uh, is invited to speak um, from one or other side of the Israel-Palestine uh, situation, that's going to cause controversy from the opposing side. Right. Uh, so, you know, the, the, these things blow up all, all the time. My own view is that a university ought to be a safe space for free speech. 
Mm-hmm. And, that, and that means that you're going to hear some unpalatable things. But if uh, some people come along wanting to say unpalatable things, and by the way, the only things that you would rule out are incitements to violence or, or hatred. But if you invite somebody who's going to say some very unpalatable things, then what you have to do in meeting bad use of free speech is with better use of free speech. That is, you challenge, you question, you criticize, you call people out. That's the way to do things. Uh, and it's an old, you know, small L liberal idea. There it is in um, John Stuart Mill on liberty. The reason, and it's a perfectly good reason, which is that if you shut people up, if you don't listen to people, you've lost an opportunity to learn something, including uh, what your own better arguments against that position might be. You also uh, lose a, a, an opportunity of giving those ideas a vent. So you should you should you should let people speak unless it's going to be incitement to violence or, or hatred. And if you don't like what they say, you should challenge it and you should bring to bear better and stronger arguments. Thank you for that, Professor. Very, it's very inspiring to hear that. Do you hope to? Uh, have better facility for that at the new college? And how might you do that? Well, by, by encouraging it. And, and when situations arise where that uh, hasn't happened yet, but where some students want to, um, you know, blackball uh, somebody, stop them from speaking in, in the college, um, you know, to try, try to address that and work it through on the basis of principle. Mm. The, the students themselves, so the college has responsibilities when it as an institution invites people, the students are free to, to invite people to come and speak. They have to be responsible about that, though, and understand what the consequences might be unless it's properly managed. Uh, so it's a great learning opportunity for them too, obviously. But th- this, this, this idea that one's passion and commitment Tremendously valuable, but when you're young, you should feel passionate and, and committed about things. You know, uh, you should be, you know, very much against racism and very much against any form of discrimination, sexism, and, and so on. You should be for social justice. You should be for trying to make our world a better place. Feeling those things right in the marrow of your bones, but at the same time, you, you have to realize that 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 means also trying not to become an extremist for one's cause, to the extent that you deny other people an opportunity to have their say. Mm. I, you know, on the back of that, I wonder if I could ask you, Professor, um, uh, it seems that we're seeing in the world today a tremendous gravitation towards the extremes, both on, on the left and the right. Um, the center is struggling to hold. What do you attribute that to? In my view, the extremes have always existed, but uh, they've been given new amplifiers in the form of social media. Mm-hmm. Social media is having a tremendous impact on our world in ways that are um, good and bad, but, but sort of mainly bad, although I wouldn't myself want to, to censor them. I think there are one or two remedies that are required, as I'll come back to in a moment. But, but what I have in mind here is this. Martin Luther, at the beginning of the 16th century, when he nailed his theses up on the church door at Wittenberg, was saying things uh, in his complaints about the church, which had been said many times before. Indeed, not only had they been said, but people had died for saying them before, people like Jan Hus and so forth. But he lived in the immediate aftermath of the introduction of a new and powerful technology, the technology of printing. Mm 
Not much more than half a century before, Gutenberg had invented the movable type press, uh, and uh, within 50 years of doing so, millions of books, millions literally, had been produced, pamphlets and, and, uh, you know, uh, ballads and all sorts of things had been run off these printing presses in cities and towns all over Europe. And Luther lived in the honeymoon period of that. And so his views, no different from, from former views, but his views were disseminated in thousands and tens of thousands of pamphlets and works all around Europe and changed history. Reformation, no, without any question, had a huge impact on European history. Exactly the same thing is happening with social media. The great tragedy of the killing of, of George Floyd has, alas and alas, been repeated so many times in the United States of America and elsewhere uh, over the decades and decades in which I've been conscious of these things happening. But they happened w without a mobile uh, telephone having a video uh, capture facility, which could be sent in a flash of a second all around the world. This has changed the game. This way of, of uh, mm. disseminating news and opinion uh, has changed everything, not least by getting information out there, but perhaps even more by getting all the falsehood and um, rubbish and nonsense and so on, which you also see on social media. Because alas, you know, social media is, is just a huge sewage system in, in a way of all the trolling and the nastiness and the prejudice and the hate speech and what have you that, that pours out on, on social media, threatening to drown out the good side, which is sharing information as with the George Floyd uh, event and um, being an agora for debate and for new ideas and for people to call out other people who are doing bad things. So, you know, you, it's, it's a very mixed picture, but on the whole, it's a very bad one. I'll give you one example of a particularly bad aspect to it, which is that uh, in political advertising and manipulation of elections and referendums, it's possible for a, a party to micro-target, to, to send messages to selected groups of people, which other people cannot see. Other people cannot see those messages. And so if the messages are falsifying uh, or, or contain distortions or lies, they can't be called out because they can't be seen by people who might challenge them. I have two remedies for social media as this immensely powerful new kid on the block, you know. One of them is to get rid of anonymity. Now, I know a lot of people say, oh, well, that, that will um, stop uh, whistleblowers and, you know, uh, that, that'll be a problem. But, but frankly, it's anonymity which is the main reason why social media can be such a sewer. Because if everybody's name and address was known, there would be far less uh, of, the, of the rubbish that we see on the internet, and that would be, in itself, it would be a good thing. And the second remedy is that so far as political messaging is concerned, it should never be allowed to be micro-targeted. If you're going to put out a political message, it must be visible to everybody. And then if it contains misinformation, it can be called out. Sounds like sound remedies. I, um, as you're speaking, it's, you know, I'm envisioning, I'm a very visual learner, and as, as I hear you, I'm envisioning this massive, opaque cloud of debris you know, that one can't really see through. And, and you know, when the when the George Floyd killing happened, you know, I, in my position as a senior rabbi of, of the oldest Jewish community in the country, um, I'm expected to say something when that, when that occurs. And I, you know, hearing you, I, I, I had this feeling that I just wanted to go onto an island for 
a day <laughs> just so that I could get away from the noise and debris and kind of think, what do I think of this? And yes, I imagine that if we were to take away anonymity, that would help. I don't know how that would happen. I can't imagine how it is that we would be able to facilitate that, but I, I definitely hear the logic behind that. I wonder if there is another component that I'm interested in your perspective on. You know, I think that um, part of the issue that's driving um, gravitation towards extremes, of which, of course, they've always been there, um, it seems that they're becoming more weighted and that the center is becoming a little bit less populated. It, it seems to me also that the world is progressing in almost in an exponentially, at an exponential rate. Um, the technologies are developing, the, the advances are developing, and you know, we struggle to be able to, to go back to the beginning of our discussion, you know, to, we struggle to be able to find the meaning in the rapidity of change that we're experiencing. We are having trouble kind of finding our feet because what it is that we found meaning in, security in, awareness of, um, even five years ago is not what is happening today. The institutions that we so embraced are, are kind of being deconstructed before our eyes. And so uh, it seems that we tend to gravitate towards what we know, what is kind of clear cut, what is black and white. Would you say that there's any, you know, do, do you identify any of that happening? I, I think what you say is, is true. Um, and again, I, I think it's, it's something that's always been true. But perhaps not at this at this rate. You know, the world is getting faster, Professor. That, that, is, that, that is true. That, that, that is true. Uh, although, of course, I, I'm putting in mind, just trying to dredge up from memory the name of the poet in question, but there's a Persian poet who lived at about the same time as Omar Khayyam, who wrote a little story about a countryman who decided to go into the town, which he'd never visited before, to sell his watermelon. And when he got into the town, he was so bemused and befuddled by the huge numbers of people and the tumult and the noise and the dust that we very quickly became exhausted. And he slumped down next to a wall and thought, I must, I must go to sleep. I've got to you know, shut down a bit. But then he was very worried that he might not know who he was when he woke up again because there were so many people around. So he tied the watermelon to his ankle uh, as a sort of memento, a bit like putting a, tying a piece of string around your finger. So he did that and went to sleep. And a beggar saw this and was amused by it and very carefully and surreptitiously untied the watermelon and tied it to his own ankle. So that when the countryman woke up, he was in an even worse dilemma than he had been before. <laughs> now, the, the point of the story, of course, is that he was overwhelmed by the tumult uh, of, of the town. Everything is relative. Uh, and uh, I, I think, although you're dead right, this is a much faster world. Things happen much more quickly than they used to and all the more so because of social media as well. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, it's not as though th this is an entirely new experience. It's not different in kind. It's just different in degree. Mm -hmm. So having said that, uh, I revert to the point I make about the new amplifiers because extremists on either side, in the far right and the far left of, of any position, have always been the noisiest. They are the ones that one hears most because the people in the center are quieter. And therefore, the impression that the centre is being evacuated and everything is becoming more polarised is both the case and not the case. It's, it's both not the case because 
you know, the the um, silent majority, as they call them, always been there. But it is the, the, the case with particular issues. So, for example, Brexit in the UK, that has polarised our society very dramatically. And the, the people on, on opposite extremes, and I'm on one, um, you know, are very opposed to people on the other extreme, and we make a lot of noise about our positions. But the degree of amplification and the number of people are not necessarily the same thing. Nor indeed um, is the perception that there is no longer a middle ground in general. There may be some cases where the middle ground has indeed been depopulated somewhat. Particular issues have done that. But generally speaking, the great majority of people very probably want to get on with their lives, look after their kids, get their work done, get on with their careers, enjoy their holidays, um, in, you know, enjoy the programs and television that they like, and so on. That pro- probably carries on in its ordinary way. And uh, all that I would ask of them is that they answer the Socratic question while they do so. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that, that point. You know, as you say, uh, that it's nothing new. It, it echoes for me Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Is that, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the wise thing is to recognize that there is nothing new under the sun. The, um, the, um, this point about the, you know, the, the extremes, you know, being a bit more vociferous and we hear them more, certainly I, I acknowledge that and recognize that and that the center is more silent. I wonder if it isn't because they are more pensive. What's, what's, what's contributing to that, to that quiet? Is it nothing- just that they're getting on with their lives? No, no, nothing has a single cause. So it mm-hmm. may be that some are more pensive, um, some are more anxious because, you know, with all the cascade of new information, new points of view, uh, uh, everything, it can be quite bewildering. And people tend to withdraw a little bit into their shells and try to stick to what's familiar. Uh, it might also be because uh, there are so many distractions that make people gravitate to that uh, that silent center. The distractions of entertainment, of, of television, or what mm. used before the pandemic to be very ready travel and so on. Mm. It would seem indeed that um, that thought is is absolutely needed by all of us. And I, th- I, I want to thank you, Professor, for all the work that you do in, in to providing uh, the great ideas and, and philosophies in, in, in terms and ways that that the average person can absorb. It's been a tremendous pleasure to, to speak with you, and I thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to engage in this conversation and for your insights. Thank you very much indeed, Rabbi. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to Humans Being with me, Joseph Dweck. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, and check out the links in the show notes for more information. 